Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 3 through 14 today. We're going to talk a little bit about grace. The title of the sermon is The Grace of God and Truth. And we definitely live in a world where grace has been misunderstood, it's been abused. All sorts of things. And so the question that we might want to ask is, is the message of God's grace sufficient to save you fully and completely? Is the grace of God enough? Do you need something more than the grace of God? And the answer is, you do not if you understand the grace of God in truth. In verse 2 of chapter 1, Paul spoke a blessing over the Colossian saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. He has one simple prayer. I want grace for you. In today's passage, Paul is going to thank God for the grace already given. And he is going to pray for continued grace in their lives. And as he does this, I think it is very enlightening, very helpful to us to understand more fully what is the grace of God in truth. So I'm going to read the entire passage, and then we'll walk through it. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ Jesus on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Epaphras had visited Paul and told him how the Colossians were coming to faith. And he also gave him a a general report that these young believers were filled with a love for all the saints. We're going to talk about that in a moment. And so because of faith and because of love that he hears these reports, he gives thanks to God the Father, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this implies 
immediately to us that when it comes to faith and when it comes to love, that God is the cause of those. Okay? Kind of a subtle way. He's not arguing for God's sovereignty over faith and love, but he's just assuming it. If you thought that faith and love originated in the person, you'd give thanks to them for their faith and love. Instead, he gives thanks to God for their faith and love. So he's giving credit to God. That's why he's giving thanks to God. The truth is that if there is ever true faith present in a person, or if there is ever love, true love, present in a person, they are always the fruits of God's grace. So I ask you the question today. When is the last time that you purposely thanked God for the faith that is present in your heart or those around you? And when is the last time that you have thanked God for any beginnings or stirrings of love that you see either in your own heart or those around you? Or do you just take those for granted? I think so often we are so fixated on the imperfection of faith or the imperfection of love that we're constantly looking at what's lacking rather than what is already there. Instead of making us thankful people, we're always critical people. The presence of any faith or any love in a person's life is reason to give thanks to God the Father. One application of this is that we should give thanks more often. And we should not just give thanks for, oh, I I got a job or I have a roof over my head. We should give thanks for the presence of faith and love in our hearts. Spend more time doing that. I think I'd be a happier person if I did that. Now, let me just make a a statement. We had this in the the bulletin, what is true faith? But, But saving faith is a motion of the soul. Just to be clear, your, your soul, it's, it's something that you can't even see. It's a motion of the soul. And it involves two related actions. It, re, it involves reliance. It's like your soul is saying, I need you, God, and believe that you are going to be there for me. That's that reliance. That's a part of what faith is, is reliance. The other aspect of faith is Commitment. Where you're actually saying, I am committed to you, to follow you. That's what faith is. And these motions of the soul are activated by understanding. You actually know something about Jesus, and so you're motivated to trust Him, and you're motivated to follow Him. That's what the action of faith is. You don't need to know everything there is to know about Jesus, but you have to know the truth about Jesus and some of the basic truths about Him. And you have to understand them in your heart so that you can actually engage in this reliance and in this commitment. It's what we pray that will happen in Lewis's heart at a very young age. That he will begin as he hears from mom and dad and praying and in church, that he just he begins to say, oh, Jesus is great, I need Him, and Jesus is Lord, so I need to follow Him. That's what we're asking for. That's faith. 
Now, Paul assumes the faith is present in these Colossians. He hasn't even been there. He hasn't even met them. He doesn't know their hearts and, you know, someone so-and-so truly saved. All he knows is that they have professed their faith. They they have uh, been baptized visibly in the church. And that he's excited about that. I hear of your faith, and man, I'm thanking God for it. Okay? Now, in addition, he also hears reports about their love. Now, again, Paul doesn't know them. He doesn't know the nitty-gritty. It's kind of like people say, man, if you knew what was going on in my family, you would not think so well of me, right? He does not look digging in all that. He just, he just knows that these Christians in some way are demonstrating love to the other Christians. Okay? And it's not just a generic love for anybody. Notice in the text it says it is a love for all the saints. One of my favorite hymns is For All the Saints. Because it speaks of this entire body of Christ. So Paul's not just thankful that that selfishness is being overcome and that they're loving someone. He's excited and giving thanks to God because members of the church are loving the rest of the members of the church. They're not picking and choosing. They're not being showing favoritism. They're actually loving the rest of the saints. They are acknowledging that when Jesus saves a person, they are becoming a member of his body. So they're not only united to Jesus Christ vertically, but they're also united with the rest of the body. And so they say, I've got a commitment to love the rest of the flock. And so Paul's like, wow, that doesn't normally happen. We love the people that we have affinity with. And he's saying, wow, you guys are actually loving the rest of the body because you are believing that there's one body in Christ. And he is so excited for that. So, on the one hand, Paul sees faith and love as these, um, the fruits of this invisible grace that God has poured out upon people. But he's not so wrapped up in that God does it that he, he doesn't think that there's any um, kind of human cause to this faith and love. So if you look at verse 5, he says that you have faith and love, and he uses the word because, because of the hope that laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. So the Colossians believe and the Colossians love because they have a common hope. It's produced by the grace of God, but it's still something that they understand. And they're like, yes, that's what I'm hoping for. And that's producing faith in them and it's producing love in them. So what is this hope? Well, Paul doesn't really explain it. He says that it has come to you, uh, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. So there you go. That's that phrase, the grace of God and truth. We have to grow in our understanding of the gospel. That's why we give so much attention to preaching, because we want you to understand this hope that is yours in Christ, the grace of God and truth. That's what we care about. He doesn't explain the hope, but he does allude to it, and he will, as time goes on in the rest of this chapter, he'll make it more explicit. 
But he says that this hope is bearing fruit and growing all over the world. Now, because we've just preached through Genesis, and we were in Genesis 1 and 2 a year and a half ago, you of course remember that, right? No. Uh, (laughs) Paul is thinking about creation. Whenever God first created the world, he creates the trees and he says, be fruitful and multiply. When he creates Adam and Eve, he says, be fruitful and multiply. Right? This fruitfulness, Adam is supposed to bear fruit as the, his uh, offspring are bearing fruit throughout the world. Well, of course, the, the fall like ruins all this, right? There's all this destruction and sin and stuff. But when you get to the first promises to Abraham and the promises of the gospel, it's also, again, bear fruit. And then at the end of the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah, the people of God are just not walking with God. Everything's bad. And Jeremiah gives them these promises. And he says, guess what? There's going to come someone who is going to bear fruit. And who do you think that someone is? It's Jesus. So just as the first Adam messed up bearing fruit, so the new Jesus, the new Adam, Jesus, is bearing fruit. So Paul is he's looking at them and he's seeing the beginnings of this fruitfulness of faith and love, and he's telling them, I want it to continue bearing fruit in you. So the hope of the gospel, and this is I'm I'm making a bunch of jumps here, but here the fruit of the gospel is the entirety of the church all being completely sanctified and glorified, dwelling together in love and peace and joy in a perfect world that God has created. That is the hope. And that's why their faith in Christ doesn't just lead them to believe in Christ, but it also leads them to love the rest of the body. Because you're going to be loving one another in harmony throughout all eternity. That's the gospel of hope. And so if you believe that, it will affect how you treat other people now. In a very real way, when Jesus goes to the cross and then is placed in the grave, it's almost like a seed going into the ground, and now that seed is going to grow up and bear fruit, and you are the product of that. You guys are from the South. I don't know if you have these legends, but up in Ohio, we had the legend of Johnny Appleseed. You guys know who he is? We, I mean, we have no idea whether anything was true about Johnny Appleseed. I think there was someone that did this, but, but basically, anytime you saw an apple tree somewhere in a field, and literally, they would be, you know, like, why is that apple tree there? You know, it's like, what? And they say, oh, well, Johnny Appleseed just walked across this land and planted seeds, you know, and that's what he did. And so... Um, but in a, in a, that's kind of silly, but in a real sense, we're saying that if anyone is believing in Jesus Christ, it is because the seed of Jesus Christ was planted in the ground, and now it's bearing fruit. That's what we're saying. See how this is thankfulness? How you get excited when you see someone that believes? But, God, but Paul's understanding of the grace of God in truth, in truth is not just 
past grace, but it's also future grace. It's also, uh, I think uh, John Piper said that, so I don't want to, like, uh, future grace, he wrote a book on that. I don't want to be uh, stealing from him without giving him credit. But there's future grace. It's ongoing. So in verse 9, we get to see that Paul's not just thanking God, as if that's all there is, but his thankfulness leads him into greater prayer. And that's what happens in verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled. There's that fullness, that, that completion, filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So here's the deal. Grace already received fuels you to pray for future grace. You don't just pray like, oh, I don't, I'm not been given grace, so therefore I'm asking for it. You're seeing that the grace that already has been given is connected to the grace that will be given. Now, I know that there's a type of knowledge that just leads us to pride. You know, you just learn things and you feel proud that you know so much. But that's not, the, that's not the knowledge that he's talking about. He's talking about a true knowledge of who God is and what God loves. That's what the knowledge of his will is. And so Paul's praying that, okay, you've got this initial faith, this initial love, but I'm praying that you will grow in your spiritual understanding of the heart of God. If I didn't believe that that's still happening in my heart, I'd quit preaching. Every time I go to the Word, every time I study it, I'm like, it's God's ripping away the false ideas about Him and, and encouraging the true ideas about Him. And it's leading me to a greater and greater knowledge of God. It also means this, that if you're going to walk in a manner worthy of God, that it has to be preceded by a knowledge of His grace, a knowledge of who God is. It's, it's like, we don't just say, okay, Jesus saved you, get doing what's right. We believe that the way that you are able to live in a manner worthy of God is to grow in your knowledge and understanding of God. So, so the first thing we do is keep teaching you about Christ, teaching you about the greatness of God, teaching you who He is, because that's the process by which you will begin to live in a life that's manner, uh, worthy of God. So knowledge precedes practice. It's what we all want to believe here in all things. It also tells us the opposite side of the ridge line. If you think you're growing in the knowledge of God, but you're not being transformed, you don't really know God. So you need to question whether or not you're really loved. Do I really know God? My behavior stinks. It's not any change at all. Well, you're probably not learning God correctly. And I know there's always a disparity. You know more about God than your behavior. I get that. But if there's just no transformation of behavior, you, no love for the saints, no ongoing faith, you don't know God. <clears throat> All right, so Paul's going to break down living in a manner worthy of the Lord. He's going to give you four different ways that it's broken down. The first is in verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work. Again, we're right back to this bearing fruit. Paul might have simply said, hey, get your life fixed, man. Straighten up. Be different. Do good. 
Instead, he prays that their knowledge of God and the beauty of God would be so wonderful that they would bear fruit in good works. Now, he doesn't go through what these works are, but they're, they're basically just the kind of things that Christ did on earth apart from the miraculous stuff. You know, he, he cared for people. He was kind. He was a servant. He sacrificed his will to the will of his Father. That's what doing good works are. So you can do good works in any situation that you find yourself. Okay? That's what he's saying. You're bearing fruit. Jesus in his life lived a certain way. He's died on the cross so that he could then be living in you and you could be bearing fruit in good works. Talked to Philip last night and he was saying that we sometimes narrow those good works down. Well, they could be all over the place. And it doesn't matter what situation you find yourself in, you can live out Christ's works. I don't like the idea, Jesus has done so much for you, the least you can do is live for him. Because that seems to separate his work from your work. And the reality is, his work is bearing fruit in you. It's him doing it. And it takes the focus away from what he's doing and just on to what I'm doing, which again I think leads to spiritual pride. Ephesians 2.10 says it well. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The second way in which we live in a manner pleasing of the Lord is also in verse 10. It is increasing in our knowledge of God. Now, If you're following this, this sounds very circular. Because he just prayed that God would increase their knowledge so that you could live a life worthy of God. And now he's saying that living life worthy of God is increasing your knowledge of God. Sounds circular, right? And I just want you to understand, Paul is smart. If you just looked at knowing God as a means to good behavior, then you have made good behavior more important than knowing God. And what Paul is saying is that, yes, knowing God leads to good behavior, but really, knowing God leads to knowing God. That's the supreme goal. That's what you really want. And so G.K. Beale says, this is not circular reasoning, but more spiral. The knowledge of God leads to good works and to even greater knowledge of God. And that's what we want. So we're never like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know the gospel, let's move on. You know, it's always like, I want to know more of God and who he is. Verse 11 gives us the third. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Now, I like this one because it's, you would think that in, in doing good works, it's like conquering evil, overcoming stuff, being victorious. And what he says is, you want to live a worthy life, it is praying for God to give you endurance. And even endurance so much that it's mixed with joy. That's what it is. Jesus has all the power. He has all the glorious might. He could do whatever he wants. He could get rid of all your problems. He could bring the new kingdom. But he hasn't done it yet. And so what he's praying for is that they just have the grace to endure. (laughs) 
This brings me to an illustration, a, an example that I hope is helpful. Um, there's a guy named Zion Clark. Anybody heard of Zion Clark? Not, it's not famous necessarily. But he is a guy that I don't know a whole lot about. He's from Canton, Ohio. That's where I'm from. That piqued my interest in him. He was born with something called caudal regression syndrome. Caudal regression syndrome. It means he was born without legs. I mean, literally without legs. He can put his arms on the floor and and he can walk on his hands. He grew up in foster care. His parents abandoned him immediately. Immediately. He was in like 14 different foster homes. He was bullied. He was beaten. He was underfed. This just sounds like one of the worst beginnings you could ever have. Now, if I were you, I'd be praying, heal him, give him new legs, you know, whatever, all the things that Christ would do if he would have saw him at that time. Instead, God sends to him a lady, Kimberly Hawkins, and she's a foster parent, and she adopts him as her own when he's 17 years old. I don't know if there's any Christianity in this. It seems hard for me to know that there wouldn't be, but maybe there's not. I don't know. But she began to love him. She began to affirm him. She began to to challenge him. And she became the source of grace in Zion's life. And one of the things that he did was he took up wrestling. Now, I've not really been a wrestler, but I know that you would like to have your legs in wrestling. I'm not talking about disabled wrestling. He was wrestling in the high school. He lost his first 200 matches. 200 matches. Would you have stopped? Probably at 10. And he finally wins his first match, and he then goes on to become like third in the state, and then actually wrestles like for the Olympic teams. I mean, it's just amazing what he does. And you can look him up and study whatever about him, but his trials are not over. I'm thinking to myself, this guy's trials are only beginning. What happens when his body starts getting weaker and he gets older and you know, different trials? But, but if you listen to this guy and you hear him talk, there's a peace, there's a joy, there's a willingness to endure the trial. And I'm thinking, wow, that's what we should be as Christians. We're always praying, get rid of the trials. Make life easy for me. And Paul says, I want you to be strengthened in the trial. And I want you to be so strengthened that you would even have joy in that trial. That's a life that's pleasing to God. The fourth one, fourth category. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You see, here's Paul saying, he's saying... You want to be living a life that is worthy of your Savior? Then thankfulness should exude from you. That's what he wants. Your life should tell the world how great Christ is. Not how angry you are. Not how sad you are of the the problems of the world. But thankfulness. To the God who has given you faith and love. 
And he's saying, give thanks, give thanks not just because of the, 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 the fruit of daily living, which is certainly good. I mean, you could be thanks that you have a home and a job and a family and all those kind of things. And God wants you to be thankful for those things. But the one thing he wants you to be thankful for every day is that God has qualified you to share in the eternal inheritance of the saints. Amen. 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 We should be saying amen. Every day, new struggles will go before you. Every day, you will be challenged. But God is giving grace in those struggles. Not to just get rid of them, but to give you strength to endure. Knowing that you will one day have all of those trials gone and you will be rejoicing with the rest of the saints. All of the saints. Paul says to them, You were a part of the kingdom of darkness. Now you are part of the kingdom of light. God has transferred you from one kingdom to the next. You don't feel like it because you're still living in this world of darkness. But the reality is, is you have already been transferred into this other kingdom. And so he says, you are fit. You are ready. You are, you're, there's not a, it's not like you're making yourself fit for this kingdom. You've already been qualified. You're already fit. How do you know this? Because Jesus Christ has forgiven all of your sins. And so you should be thankful. A lot of things not to be thankful for. Losing loved ones. You know, uh, trials, struggles, all these kind of things going on in our lives. Lots of things to struggle with. But you should be thankful. Because Jesus Christ has taken his death and he has borne fruit in your heart. Be thankful for that. So here's the kind of conclusion. What is the grace of God in truth? Well, it's a grace that's producing faith. It's a grace that's producing love. It's a grace that is actually changing the way we live. And the four basic ways that it's changing the way that we live is that we are striving to see God produce good works in our life. We are growing in our understanding of God. We are being strengthened to endure with joy and we have been qualified to share in this inheritance, and so we are thankful people. Much more than just do some good stuff. So I asked at the beginning whether the grace of God is enough. And I would tell you that only the grace of God can produce these things. You can try human religion. It will not produce this kind of stuff. Only the grace of God will produce these things. And as you pray for more and more grace, because I know that you're constantly looking at where you fall short, because as Christians we always fall short, don't pray as if it's not already yours. You see, when Christ died for you and gave you the offer of the gospel, it is a treasure chest full of grace. And the whole chest is yours. All of it. And so when you're praying God for more grace, He's just taking a little bit more out of the treasure chest and giving it to you, little by little. But it all belongs to you in Christ. 
And so don't just constantly look, oh, I'm fighting against this sin. I don't think I'm there. It's like, it's like instead of knowing that we've already been transferred into the kingdom of light, we think we're still in the kingdom of darkness and we're trying to get out of the kingdom of darkness. He's saying, no, no, you've already been transferred. You're in the kingdom of light. And so ask for more grace knowing that it is already yours in Christ. And that should be encouraging. And when you look at the the ways in which other people in the church still are not fully complete, and you look at their, their shortcomings and their sins, challenge yourself to look at the bestirrings and the beginnings of faith and love in them. Instead of being critical, trust that God in His time is doing this work of grace and it is going to flourish and it is one day going to fill the whole earth and we are going to see the glory of God. And pray with that kind of mindset. It'll change your perspective. The grace of God in truth is enough. Amen.